Now you will notice from your handout that we're concentrating on verses 12 to 16 today. But I want to read the whole section because we want to discuss the structure of the entire unit in a minute. So turning with me in your Bible to Revelation 1, I'm beginning to read at verse 9, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamon and to Thyatira, and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, which has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now we want to begin today with the structure of this unit, verses 9 to 20, which I am going to argue consists of three subunits or three distinct scenes. And we will further, further observe that there is a narrative here, a narrative drama with two characters, Christ and John. Christ, the giver of revelation, John, the receiver of revelation. Christ, the source of revelation, John, the recorder of revelation. Christ, the actor in the drama, John, the observer of the drama. And we, with ears to hear, join John in receiving this revelation, reading what John has recorded, observing the drama he has observed, becoming part of this story. 
We are drawn into this dramatic narrative as Christ makes himself known more richly and wonderfully to us, even as he made himself known more richly and wonderfully to John in this narrative unit. This is an enrichment paradigm, a paradigm to nourish and enrich your hungry hearts and souls. All right, first, we divide the scenes or subunits of this section, that is, verses 9 to 20, as follows. Verses 9 to 11, verses 12 to 16, and verses 17 to 20. Now, we do this because of something which is symmetrical in verse 9 to 11, and something which repeats that symmetry in verses 17 to 20. Something which is not present, something which is absent from verses 12 to 16. All right, so the subunits fall out because of a recursive paradigm. That is, something is repeated in verses 9 to 11 and verses 17 to 20, which is not repeated in verses 16, I'm sorry, 12 to 16. Now, you may want to scan briefly verses 9 to 11 and then also look briefly at verses 17 to 20 and see if you can see that symmetrical or recursive marker. See if you can spot it yourself as you examine your own English translation. It is quite, pre- it is quite prominent in the Greek because it's a Greek verb that is the same root in both instances. And keep in mind the dramatic element here. What do you see in 9 to 11 that is repeated in 17 to 20? One word. Art, you're nodding your head. Well, one word is right. Mm, okay. Any other word you see? Saying. 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 Yes, the word saying. <clears throat> the speaker is speaking. Is he speaking in verses 12 to 16? No, he is silent in verses 12 to 16. We have, therefore, a sandwich so that we are justified in distinguishing verses 9 to 11 and 17 to 20 from verses 12 to 16 and thus sandwiching 12 to 16 between the other two speech units, the dramatic spoken word of the risen Christ. So I'm going to give you labels for these three subunits. Verses 9 to 11, I'm going to label the commission. The commission. Verses 12 to 16, the vision. The vision. Christ speaks in 9 to 11. Christ does not speak in 12 to 16. And we're going to label verses 17 to 20, the reaction. Christ speaks once again. 
the commission, Jesus speaks, saying, the vision, Jesus does not speak, the reaction, Jesus speaks, saying. Now, I think that places in prominence what we're going to examine in detail this afternoon, verses 12 to 16. This dramatic description, this characterization of the risen Christ is quite remarkable and wonderful in its own right. The revealer speaks. Christ dramatically speaks to John. John hears the voice of Jesus. Recall, this is the voice that he knew. It is the same voice that he had heard in Galilee when he was called to be a disciple or follower of Jesus. It is the same voice of Jesus that he heard in Judea when he saw Jesus teach and work his miracles. It is the same voice of Jesus that he heard in Samaria when Jesus reported the results of the meeting with the woman at the well. It is the same voice that he heard in Jerusalem when he heard Jesus crying out from the cross. And it is the same voice that he heard on the Mount of Ascension when Jesus ascended into a cloud and spoke his blessing upon his disciples as they watched. This is the same Lord Jesus upon whose breast John had laid his weary head at the Last Supper. This is the same Lord Jesus who spoke and the sick were healed, who spoke and the blind could see, who spoke and the lame walked, who spoke and the dead were raised to life anew. This is the ongoing, continuing, dramatic narrative of the voice of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth in the flesh, but now a voice tinged with surpassing eschatological glory. Jesus' voice, which was heard in the flesh, is now a voice out of heaven's oratory, a voice as the very voice of God himself from within God's very own environment. John is hearing this voice as he never heard it before. He is hearing this voice being spoken forth by Jesus as one who is in the very atmosphere of Godness. It is a voice which spoke in the narrative of redemptive history and now speaks in the glorified narrative of eternity. It is the Son of God, very God, speaking with the voice of his glorified incarnate self. John had never heard the voice from that arena. This is the first hearing of that tremendous and magnificent and omnipotent voice. It is this voice which unites the interadventualist narrative drama. It is this voice which unites the now of the first advent and the not yet of the second advent. For in the person of the risen Son of God, these two are one. First and second advent are one, distinct but not separate, 
on account of what eternity and infinity do to time and space. That is to say, eternity transcends the temporal, for eternity is atemporal. Eternity transcends the temporal as space is transcended by infinity. Infinity is aspatial. And all this coexists in the eternal and infinite God-man as this apocalyptic book of Revelation testifies. Well, might John fall down before him as one dead. Well, might John fall down before him as one dead. For it is only as one passes from death to resurrection life, life risen from the dead, that this revelation, this apocalypse becomes perfectly clear. He could not comprehend the height and length and depth of this unless he had died and risen again himself. Now, Denison, you are speculating. No, I want to address that in more detail next time. But that statement that he fell on his face as though he were dead is, in my opinion, literally required for him to participate in the drama of this vision. But I'm not dogmatic about it, but I will make my case for it subsequently. All right, now the setting of this scene, verses 12 to 16, is a circle of seven golden lampstands, reminding us of the geography of the seven churches, that somewhat irregular circle, which we noted on the map of the circuit from Ephesus to Laodicea and back. As we envision what John saw, there is the Lord Jesus in the middle of the seven. That's what the text says. I saw in the middle of the landstands one like a son of man. Christ in the center of the circle of the seven lamps. The circle centered on Jesus. The light from the lampstands encircling the light of life. I am the light of the world, surrounded by seven mini lamps of the light to the world in the world. Their light, the seven mini lamp lights, derive from him who is light, him in whom there is no darkness. The fact that the Son of Man stands in the middle of these lampstands is an indication of him standing in the midst of the life of those seven churches. You can imagine him placed in the middle of that irregular circle on the map, even as he stands in the midst of these seven lampstands in the text. This scene, in verses 12 to 16, places the true light at the center of the light mirrors, the light reflectors. Jesus, the light of the seven churches, notice verse 20, the seven lamplights are the seven churches. Jesus, the source of light in the seven churches. Jesus, the central light of the seven churches. Jesus, the light, 
No light in the seven churches unless he is in the middle, unless he is in the center, unless he is in the midst. No light. No light in the church unless it is the reflected light of Jesus who is the light of life. No light in the church unless Jesus is the central lamplight who creates sons and daughters of the light by casting his light into their dark souls and setting them alight by the light of life eternal. He is central to the drama as he is central to the revelation, as he is central to the apocalyptic vision because he is the central life of that world, both transcendent and temporal. So our narrative here, our narrative drama here, is as eschatological as it is apocalyptic. Christ who appears to John here is the risen Christ. He is a vision out of the apocalypse who has experienced in his story, experienced in his history, experienced the last things. He has experienced the eschatological thing. Now, the last things a human body experiences are death, then burial, and finally, the very last thing, resurrection of the body. These are the last things. That narrative of human history, the story of man and woman, that narrative is in front of us, and yet to be experienced in front of us. It is behind Jesus. He has already experienced it in his story. His incarnate body has passed through the eschatological things already. He has died. He has been buried in the grave. He has been raised in the body from the grave. What is future to our bodies is past to his body. So the apocalyptic Jesus who appears to John in verses 12 to 16, is the Jesus of the eschaton. He has passed through the last things, including the resurrection of his body, and has taken his place in the glory of endless light and life. His body, his resurrection body, has entered heaven's glory. All of human historical sequence is complete and finished for Jesus of Nazareth. No human drama remains for the body of his flesh, which he took into inseparable union with his divine nature at his incarnation. Now with his resurrection, glorification in the body, he has completed the last things, he has completed the eschatological things himself, and so he has pioneered these last and eschatological things for all the sons and daughters of his narrative drama, his narrative story. Jesus has experienced the last things in his history. You shall experience the last things in your history as your history is joined and united unto his. Your body will die as his body did die. 
Your body will be buried as his body was buried. Your body will be raised from the dead as his body was raised from the dead. He has completed the human narrative drama in his history. But he has also completed your human narrative drama in his history. He has been raised from the dead and glorified for himself, but he has been raised from the dead and glorified for you as well. You too shall be like he is. That is the assured promise of his empty tomb and the resurrection of his body, that resurrected body that appeared to his disciples, and the discussion of what that body is like in 1 Corinthians 15, a body spiritual in nature that is perfectly subject to the Holy Spirit. But that, brothers and sisters, as our destiny. It is the destiny to be like our Lord Jesus in the resurrection body, transformed and reconfigured. Reconfigured to be perfectly, perfectly subject to the spiritual realm and the Holy Spirit breath of God that makes it alive never more to die or to perish now this apocalyptic eschatological atmosphere is very apparent in the description of the risen Christ in verses 13 and following in this section the apocalyptic and eschatological name son of man the favorite self-designation of Jesus during his earthly ministry reprises the Old Testament imagery of Daniel 7.13 and the book of Ezekiel where the prophet himself is referred to as Son of Man by God the Revealer. Jesus claims this name as his own. He identifies with the eschatological son of Adam, an historical figure, even as he lays claim to the apocalyptic eschatological man, a transhistorical figure who comes on the clouds of heaven's glory. You shall see the Son of Man come on the clouds. We note that here in Revelation 1.13, Christ appears with the atmosphere out of the environment of resurrection images, echoing or reflecting the language and environment of that first Easter event. Notice the hair, white like snow, a phrase which describes the white garment of the angel at the empty Easter tomb in Matthew 28. His garment was white like the snow. That's a reflection, a, re a reverberation of resurrection imagery and apocalyptic concepts. And the robed heavenly figures of that Easter morn who are noted in Mark 16.5 and Matthew 28.3, are matched by this surpassingly glorious robed heavenly figure. Those figures wore garments or robes. This figure wears a garment or a robe. And we should not neglect to record that Jesus used the Son of Man title to predict his resurrection on the third day. In Mark 8.31, Luke 9.22, with John, we cannot behold this figure and fail to recognize the risen Son of Man in his eschatological heavenly glorification. What you are reading here is a description 
of an, of an eschatological being raised and transformed into the glory of the age to come. Notice how he is dressed. He is dressed in a robe. A robe of victory. A robe of purity. A robe of finality. Even as our eyes are attracted to the golden sash or golden girdle which is wrapped about his chest. He is robed, not disrobed. He is covered with a garment, not uncovered without a garment. He is exalted robe-wise. He is not humiliated, nude, and disrobed-wise. He is risen and clothed upon. He is not crucified and unclothed, naked, put to shame, his garments confiscated to a Roman raffle. This robe, with its golden wrap, is his glory robe. It declares his triumph over shame and humiliation and dishonor, even as his risen glory, his risen glory robe covered, his risen glory robe covered flesh, declares his triumph over death, decay, putrefaction, dust and ashes. No dust to dust, ashes to ashes for Jesus of Nazareth. No. The robe of exaltation. The robe of glorification. The robe that shows all of this humiliation. Shadowed, covered, and blotted out. Now the appearance of our risen Son of Man, Son of Adam, Son of God is further described in terms of white light. His face is like the shining sun, verse 16. A description reminding us of the appearance of the risen Christ in his revelation to Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road where Paul declares, I saw a light from heaven Brighter than the sun, Acts twenty six thirteen. The glory upon the risen Son of Man's head is a glory which exceeds the white, hot brightness of the sun. From his robe above his feet to his hair above his head, Jesus shines with the light of God's very own glory. And as God's glory exceeds the sun in its strength, so the risen Christ is bright with light, white with light, light which shines out of the surpassing glory of heaven's radiant effulgence, more glorious than the created light of the sun. This light of the environment of heaven shines its power and radiance and rightness, whiteness into and upon the resurrected apocalyptic son of the father. There is glory full in his face. There is glory upon his head. There is glory streaming down over his glory robe. There is glory drawing us, drawing John, folding us, folding John into the drama of his radiant majesty, glory and light, white, bright. Think about what has been revealed here for you to see. 
for you to behold, for you to be drawn towards, for you to fall down and worship before. Think upon it. This revelation is a drama of a narrative which is inviting you into the mystery of the glorification of heaven's beloved Son and eternal Son of the Father. The eyes of this face, the eyes set into this head, are a light with light, a light with fire, a light with flames of burning fire. Is this the reflection and reminder that this Son of Man has been humiliated to the fire of judgment, humiliated to the flames of punishment for sin, humiliated to the fiery light of the wrath of God which he bore on the cross in the fiery crucible of his own dereliction? Is this the flicker in these fiery eyes of the wrath of God past, endured, finished, born by him on the tree of condemnation, the tree of his own descent into that fiery condemnation, which each and every one of his elect sons and daughters deserves, owes, has merited. Are these eyes like a flame of fire retrospective? Are they eyes retrospective to a bloody cross and the vicarious bearing of fiery wrath pro nobis for us? Or are these eyes like flames of fire prospective? Are they prospective prophesying a fiery wrath which awaits the unbelieving and impenitent to be unleashed on that apocalyptic and eschatological day when the Son of Man will come in his flaming glory and a lake of fire will be opened before him into which will be cast those who hate the glory of his person? Hate the radiance of his name. Hate the majesty of his death. Yea, those who hate the day of his appearing with eyes like flames of fire destined for those who love the darkness and hate the light of the Son of God. Hate the name of the Lamb of God. Hate the victory of the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. The God-haters and the day of flames of fire, from the eyes as flames of fire in the sublime, sublime face of the cloud-riding, sin-judging, hell-casting Son of Man. Do you dare, do you dare say that that tomb is not empty? Do you dare resist this victory over what you will endure Death itself. Do you dare say no to this testimony? If you do so dare, I assure you, you will behold flaming eyes of fire on a day which you will rue to your eternal consternation. Do you see how crucial the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus. Do you see how crucial Easter Sunday morning is? Do you see how essential? For this whole portrait here is based on the fact that he's not dead. He is alive. 
to, to a world which despises it, a world which ignores it, a world which is contemptuous of it. Even Christians in that world are contemptuous, contemptuous of it. The body didn't come out because dead bodies don't come out. Those fiery eyes of flame are waiting, waiting to burn away that ignorance and the reality of you bowing every knee before the throne of that risen Christ in his fiery, flaming judgment. But to those on his right, blessings and the fire of those flames is gone, is quenched in his own eye upon you as the apple of his love and compassion. This portrait here is a portrait to <clears throat> dramatize heaven's own arena and atmosphere so that John can see into that arena, into that atmosphere, even as he records these visions which are reflecting on both that and his own arena, his own worldly arena. Both and heavenly arena, earthly arena and the unfolding pattern of those images in this period between the first resurrection of Christ and his coming in resurrection glory in his second appearance out of glory. Well, I'm going to finish quickly today. So I'm going to go on. You'll have your break at the end. The Son of Man here shines in his brightness. His glory brightness shines from head to toe. This glorious Son of Man has no feet of clay. His toes and feet are burnished bronze. The polished shine of copper and tin alloyed to glistening luster with a brilliance that reflects his own radiance. Here is a display of the light that gleams from his person, from the hairs of his glorious head to the toes of his burnished, yea, glorious feet. This burnished bronze, as bronze tried in the furnace, as made red hot and shiny thereby, is a reflection once again of the glory light of his head-to-toe appearance. It draws you into the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of that dramatic appearance. And the sound of his voice, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of many waters, not the sound of several trickling streams, but the sound of many waters, like the deafening sound of upper and lower Yosemite Falls, crashing hundreds of feet to their base and silencing all else save the thunder of their plummeting cascade. You cannot stand there at the bottom and hear anything else. Or the horseshoe-shaped avalanche of many waters surging over Niagara Falls, echoing and re-echoing across the borders of Canada and the United States, you can hear it from miles away. Thunderous many waters. This voice, 
is the thundering echo and re-echo of the cascade of words from their origin, from the source of the word of God, the thundering, flowing, deafening voice of warning and blessing, of majesty and humility, of damnation and salvation. This voice of power is the voice to whom all power in heaven and earth has been committed, a voice which thunders forth, O dead in trespasses and sins, says this voice, come forth. O ye dead in trespasses and sin, come forth. Live with life from the dead by the grace life I give to whom, whom who is also alive from the dead. I am alive from the dead. I have the power to give that life. Come to me, you who are dead in trespasses and sin. That's the thundering voice of the risen Lord Jesus, calling sinners from death to life. That voice will thunder forth also. Depart from me, ye accursed, to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so this voice of many thunderous waters shall be heard again. For the hour is coming when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall come forth, some to a resurrection of life and some to a resurrection of judgment. That's the voice of the Son of God even while he was here on the earth. This voice from out of this mouth, this voice is like a sharp two-edged sword. It comes forth with razor-sharp glint that cuts both ways. Behold, this voice speaks as the voice of God of old, wrath of mercy, judgment and grace, condemnation and justification, hell and heaven, darkness and light, unbelief and faith, disobedience and obedience, evil versus good, all of that found in the pages of the Old Testament. But it is now the voice of the Son of Man, who is at once the Son of God, and so speaks razor-sharp words of God's very own visitation to his history. That is the difference, that that voice speaks of the, of the visitation which came to history by God himself entering into it, speaks incarnation, speaks righteousness justification, speaks crucifixion propitiation, speaks resurrection vindication, speaks, speaks eschatological glorification. Even as it speaks, do not reject my incarnation. Even as it speaks, speaks do not despise my righteousness justification. Do not detest my crucifixion propitiation. Do not defame my resurrection vindication. Do not contemn my eschatological glorification. For the edge of my sword is twofold. The edge of my sword is twofold. It is a blade of life unto life and the blade of death unto death. And thus we pause and conclude this wondrous characterization of the apocalyptic Son of Man who is the ontic Son of God, and we are left dumbfounded, awestruck, almost as if we are falling at his face, as though at his feet, as though dead. Because, of course, 
in order to see him as he is, we must first die before we can live. Any questions or comments you have about this characterization? I commend it to your meditation and to your faith and love. Let's pray. Glorious Son of Man, how can we not love you in all of the riches of your person and characterization which are displayed here in this passage? We thank you for that robe that you wear spotless and unblemished. We thank you for the gold which reflects the gold of your richness and glory. We thank you, O Lord, for that white head of bright, shining hair. We thank you, Lord, for those feet of burnished bronze. We thank you, O Lord, for that voice which thunders forth for our salvation not for our damnation, we who love you and serve you and fall down before you. We thank you, Lord, for your word, that two-edged sword, for we would be, we would be bound, we would be, we would, <coughs> we would be guided, we would be directed by its wonderful blessing, not the cursing, which is the other side of the blade. We would bless you, O Lord, for life and not for death. We would bless you for resurrection and not for damnation. Blessed Savior, we thank you for your self-disclosure to John and to us. And we pray, O Lord, that this treasure, this richness, may belong to us in its fullness until we see you face to face at last. In Jesus' name, amen.